0: Good morning. It's always a, uh, a joy to be here. I think I've done this, preached up here maybe seven times so far, something along those lines in the last uh, four years now that it's been, and every time um, God's blessed me through it. I don't know if anybody's come out of here with uh, <laughs> changed or any lives have been changed, but I know that mine has by the, the word of God as it's brought, and it's, it's been a joy every single time I've done that. If you could, open your Bibles to um, the book of Haggai. Um, it's the third from last book in the Old Testament, I believe, if you want to count back from Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah, and then Haggai. Um, and we'll be uh, looking at the whole first chapter of the book of Haggai. There's only two chapters. Um, but while you're turning there, just a quick note on how I came to this particular passage uh, recently, one evening, we were having our family worship time in the evening, and I had not really read my Bible that day, and I was not in a frame of mind to lead my family in singing and prayer. So I turned to my son, Titus, because I knew that he reads his Bible every day. He's much more faithful at that than I am. And I said, Titus, well, I know you're reading through the Old Testament. Where are you? And he said, well, I'm almost done with the Old Testament. I'm in the book of Haggai. It's like, all right, well, what does Haggai say? And so we looked at it as a family, and it was incredibly convicting. Um, there was a lot there you wouldn't expect uh, from the minor prophets. I don't think they get a lot of airtime, although recently here they have, um, with the uh, Sunday school class and uh, with um, at Tim Pitzer's installation service. I think we did Zechariah when we were talking about Joshua, um, the high priest. But it was incredibly convicting when I looked at it, and when we looked at it as a family. It's convicting about my own priorities in my own life. Uh, There are things that God had, I think, for his church there and things that God had for me in particular. And so usually when I'm choosing a a passage to speak about, um, I choose one that strikes me deeply, and hopefully God will use it in the same way in your lives. Um, Second note on this in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. and in Hebrew, the word for house and the word for temple is the same word. They're used interchangeably. So the translators, when they went through Haggai to translate, um, in order to be consistent and in order to have the argument make sense, they consistently translate it here, house. But when you see that word, understand that sometimes it's talking about people's houses and sometimes it's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. But Let's read, starting in verse 1, and I'll be reading through the end of the chapter in verse 15. In the second year of Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills. On the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God has sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people, with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. Lord God, um, Your word testifies to itself that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and that it is profitable. And Lord, I pray that you would um, bring that profitableness to us this morning. Um, Teach us, reprove us, rebuke us, build us up um, that we may become your temple, your people in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the people of God during this time were living in two different realities simultaneously. They were living in in two different uh, different planes at the same time. On the one hand, they were subjects of the king of Persia, and they were really his subjects. He really was the king. Um, Haggai starts off the book by placing it very, very, very specifically in history. It happened on this day, and this month, and this year, when this guy was reigning from his capital over in Persia, either Egbatana or, or Susa. But the point is, he wanted to draw attention to the fact that this happened in the real world. It did not happen on some ethereal plane. This is not a book of empty philosophy. These were real people's lives. There were real struggles and they were dealing with a really, really powerful guy, a leader, a king of the most powerful nation the world had known up to that point, um, who was far, far away from them and completely removed. The children of Israel had, had rebelled um, against the Lord their God consistently throughout most of the Old Testament, it's a sad story. Uh, most of the books of the Old Testament, most of the stories end in tragedy, <laughs> They end kind of on a down note because the people of God are rebelling over and over again. And God sent leaders and brought them back. God sent prophets and brought them back. And they came back for a little while and then rebelled again and fell again and rebelled again and rebelled again. And ultimately, the Babylonians came, destroyed the city, completely leveled it, burned it to the ground, destroyed the temple, destroyed the walls. They destroyed everything. They took the remnant of the people and brought them to the city of Babylon. The the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, did that. And in Babylon, they stayed for a long time so that the people um, who were very, very young when they were led into captivity, and the last group of captives were very, very old when this story starts. But then God raised up the king of Persia. Uh, The Babylonians had been proud, and they had been a brutal people, and God punished them by giving up their land to the Persians. The king of Persia came in, and he was better. He really was. His name was Cyrus, that first king. And um, the, the Bible actually describes him as an anointed one. He was, he was pointing forward to the Messiah, to Christ. He's the only Gentile in the Old Testament who gets that title. Um, but he was also a pragmatist. He knew that if he continued the, the brutal practices of the, of the Babylonians, then there's no way he could rule an empire that big. There's no way he could control everybody. So he started moving people back around to where they wanted to be. They had all been shuffled around by the Babylonians. They'd all been taken from their homes. And he began to grant them gifts and give them things. Um, And so he let the the children of Israel go home. He let them uh, rebuild the temple. He gave them money to do that. He charged them with offering prayers on his behalf. And this is all, by the way, coming from uh, the book of Ezra. So that's the historical background of, of Haggai, if you want to look into it. But he, he called them to offer prayers on his behalf. And so they, there was this tremendous moment of joy when people of Israel go back to their holy city. They go back to Jerusalem. They go back to the, to the temple. And they start to rebuild it from the foundations, even though there's nothing there. But the problem with political pragmatism is that uh, it... You know, you, you, can't ju- you can't juggle everybody's expectations at once. And so there were other people in the Promised Land, there were other people who had been settled there who did not like that going on. And those people opposed the Jews. The emperor said, okay, you've got to stop building now. We can't have this temple here. These people are jealous. There's going to be conflict. I can't have that in my empire. Um, stop building the temple. And so the people stopped. Um, they stopped working and they turned and started working on their own houses in, in Haggai here. So that was one reality. It's a hard, hard time that the people of Israel are living in. They had so much hope coming home. You know, the home that only the, eldest, the oldest people in their community even remembered. But then they're being opposed. They're not being allowed to do God's work. And they don't really know what to do. They're being opposed by the people around them. They're being opposed by a foreign adversary. So that's one reality. It's one reality is opposition and economic hardship, as we'll see in a second. But then there's another reality that Haggai jumps into while still in verse one. It says this, it says, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelteel, governor of Judah. The word of the Lord came. So yeah, there's this king, and he's reigning in, uh, over there in Persia. He's powerful, he really is. He's got huge armies bigger than any of the world has ever known. But then there's another king who reigns above him. There's another king who's, who's setting the standard. And that phrase came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel. It's meant to draw us into a picture of the heavenly court. Here's the God of the universe who's saying, all right, I see what's going on down there. Haggai, I have this message for you. Put it in your hand. Take it to the people. I have something to tell them. They need to hear this. Children of Israel, the people of Israel, as they came back, were living in two realities at once. One was the the physical reality that they could see, and that was very, very real to them, and it was very meaningful. And then the other one was the reality of the king, the king of kings, who was reigning above all of that and who had a separate agenda. And they were caught in the middle. So what was this message that Haggai was brought? Well, the the first message there is, um, is very simple. It's just an observation. God says this through the prophet Haggai. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's in verse 2. These people say. On the one hand, it shows that God was listening. He was paying attention. He wasn't remote. He knew what was going on. On the other hand, you're kind of left with the question, well, why were they saying that? God didn't tell them that. God didn't tell them to stop building the temple. God didn't tell them to stop doing his work. So why, why, why had they stopped? These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord, and that's the temple. Maybe they thought of themselves as waiting to do God's work until they were led. They had been given a shut door to the ministry in one sense. And they, the emperor had told them not to proceed, so they couldn't proceed. So they were waiting on God. But I don't think that that's what God had intended for them to do. Because, you see, they didn't really need that spiritual prompting. They didn't really need those open doors to start working on their own houses. They were they were, um, you know, they were facing adversity in that realm too. It, the whole, most of the chapter is talking about how God had caused their own work to be futile, but they were pushing on through. They were getting those paneled houses finished. They were getting their, their farms and their businesses built up, and they were able to do that, and they didn't need any kind of spiritual prompting to do that. They did that on their own. So in verse 4, God asked the question, Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses? In verse 9, God points out, each of you busies himself with his own house. So they had been forced to stop working on the house of the Lord, but instead of seeking the Lord and his work, they had responded by upgrading their own houses. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. There's nothing wrong with upgrading your own houses. I would be putting myself out of a job if I, if I came up here and preached that. I've worked for a lot of you guys. But, um, but the point is, They were busying themselves with the building up of their status and their wealth and their possessions, and that was getting in the way of the work that God had called them to do. It was an issue of priorities. They had deprioritized the work of the Lord, and instead they had prioritized the work on their own houses, so that the house of the Lord was now in ruins, and God was not happy with that. If God had allowed it to become difficult for them to pursue the building of his house, It did not mean that he would rather them focus on their own houses instead. In this particular case, they were meant to push on through and to continue to build, to continue to work, in spite of the adversity and in spite of the shut door to work that they had. It's interesting, they had neglected the work of the Lord and God had subjected them to futility in the pursuit of themselves. They ate, but they never had enough. They looked for much, but it came to little. And when they brought it home, God blew it away. Now, I want you to see this as an act of merciful discipline on the part of God. It was not God being vindictive. It was not God just, you know, being jealous and saying, hey, I got my house, what are you doing, and smacking people around. It was an act of merciful discipline. If they had succeeded, If they had gotten everything that they wanted and they had gotten these big prosperous farms, which is what they were looking for, and they had gotten these big prosperous businesses, which is what they were looking for, if they had succeeded in that, then they would have never known the glory of the presence of the Lord in his temple. They would have foregone that satisfaction. If they had been allowed to become satisfied in these lesser things, if they had been allowed to become satisfied in their own houses and in their own work, and in everything other than God, then they would have never known the ultimate glory. They would have never known the presence of God in their land again. That would have ended. And so God was merciful. And he he turned them over to futility for a while so that they could see that those things wouldn't satisfy. Flip over real quick to... um, the psalms uh, chapter 20 or sorry the psalm 63 and i'll read verse 1 through 5 real quick psalm 63 this is a psalm of david and it says when he was in the wilderness of judah I hope i'm in the right place yep oh god My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. My soul will be satisfied. That's what the presence of the Lord offered, and that is what the busyness of the people could not offer them. It could not give it to them. So on the one hand... um, The people were missing this glorious opportunity to have the presence of God in and among them in the temple, to be able to worship there, God and his holy house. And so it's kind of easy to condemn them for that, but I want you to appreciate the earthly reality that lay behind that. They were in a really hard spot. They were settlers in a land that was completely unsettled. It had been torn down. They were trying to rebuild a city that was built out of stones and it had been wiped out. They had come back and they had had this initial success. They had had God's initial, you know, physical blessing. Everything was going good and then the rug got pulled out from under them. You know, the emperor who had originally supported them said, Nuh-uh, you can't do that anymore." What do I do now? And their, their, you know, economic success, which originally had been pretty substantial, they had gotten a big old government grant to do this work. There was a lot of gold that Cyrus sent with them, plus the gold of the, uh, the, the implements in the, in the temple that had been looted by the Babylonians. Um, they had gotten this, this huge government grant, and apparently it all kind of filtered away. And there really just was nothing left anymore. They were in a tough spot. And it is into this very difficult situation, God sends a messenger by the hand of his prophets that says, set aside what you're doing in your own businesses and your own farms for a little while. Set that aside in order to work on my house. Everything within them would have been screaming, no, 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 no. I need to expand production. I need to put in more hours. I need to find an investment strategy that works. Isn't that biblical wisdom? Isn't that what God would have for me? You no, know, they, they had even been commanded by God to build houses while they were in Babylon, work on their own houses. And into that situation, God says, lower all of these priorities so that you can prioritize my house. That is where I want you to find joy. That is where I want to find joy with you. And that is where I want you to find joy and lasting peace and lasting satisfaction in me." It's a matter of priorities. Well, there's a happy ending here, which is, is rare in a lot of the Old Testament. Um, if you read, say, the book of Judges, you don't find a happy ending. But here you do. Um, the people get together, and you know Zerubbabel, who's the governor, he actually should be the rightful king, but he's been demoted to governor by the Persians, and Joshua, the high priest who um, we heard about in uh, Tim Pitzer's installation service. Um, And all of the people get together and said, all right, we're doing it. We're going to leave our farms for a little while. We're going to leave our businesses for a little while. We're going to come here, and we're going to work on the house of the Lord. And they did. And they started working. They started building up the house. And it doesn't happen in Haggai, but we know from history that the house was finished. Um, It was built up, uh, I guess, that's in Ezra, where it's, it's finished there. But it was built up, and worship services resumed, and God's presence was there once again with his people for a while. So where does that leave us right now? You know, I think it's a pretty powerful story, just as a standalone story. It's, um, it's pretty incredible. You know, these settlers in a foreign, or what had been their home, but had become a foreign land. But that temple that they built, that... Uh, that they had worked so hard on uh, a, f- a few years, few decades, a few years before the time of Christ, it had been aggressively remodeled by King Herod, and basically it had been torn down and rebuilt. He considered it the same temple because he kept sacrifices going the entire time so they could say that it was the same temple that, um, that Haggai and Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua and Hezra had built. Um, But he basically tore it down, expanded the foundations to be absolutely massive, built it up to be one of the most glorious buildings that the world had ever known, and everything that that Zerubbabel and the people had worked on was kind of redone. And then, about 30 years after Christ ascended into heaven, the Romans came and completely smashed the whole thing and wiped it out, and now there's one foundation wall that still remains of that temple, and that's the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. There's nothing left. There wasn't a stone on another stone. And you can, you can after you go to Jerusalem today, you can kind of see it. Um, there's actually, in, in part of Jerusalem, I've seen pictures of it, there's, uh, there's these big old craters, because the stones were so big that they used when they threw them off the top of the temple, they actually made these deep craters in the pavement below, um, places wiped out. So where does that leave us? It was never rebuilt. Well, I I might have gotten my notes out of order here. Well, the first thing it leaves us with is this, and I'm gonna touch on this rather quickly. Um, This is section 2A. Uh, in your outline, so point two letter, the the letter's actually not up there, it's on my notes, but the first part of section two there, um, the Lord is with you in this land. It amazes me how much the the great commission in the last chapter of Matthew especially, we don't have time to go there, I wish we could, Um, but the last uh, chapter of Matthew reflects a lot of the themes that are in Haggai, and one of those main themes is that the Lord is with you, In Haggai, it says it twice in the book. I think it's only once in the section that that we're reading. In in verse 13, 113, it says, I am with you, declares the Lord. And then in Matthew, at the very end of um, the very last words that Christ says before he ascends into heaven is, Behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And there's a lot of other parallels within there that we don't have time to get into But it is absolutely essential for the church of God to know that the presence of God is here. And we've been singing about it all this morning. If you forget that fact, if you forget that it is God who is doing the work, and if you forget that God not only started the work, but he is also actively progressing the work, then you lose heart. You fear, which is what Matthew warns against, and which is what Haggai in chapter 2 warns against, you, you fall into fear because if God's not here and if he's not in this work, then it's futile. You can't win. They couldn't beat the Persians. And we can't beat the, the opposition to the Lord that's here politically and socially and economically. Um, we can't beat our problems. You can't do that. You can't win unless the Lord is with you. And that was one of the standalone prophecies that Haggai had. It's, It's either the summary of an entire sermon of his or it's the contents of an entire sermon of his. In verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke with the people the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. That's what you need to know. Grab that. Hold on to it. Let it encourage you. Keep it in your heart because God is with you and he is the one ultimately doing the work of building his people. building the temple. We're going to have to move on from that, but um, point two there, um, the house of the Lord is here. So it's extremely important that we know that the house of the Lord is here. Over and over again in the New Testament, the idea of the temple serves as a symbol and a reality, and this is where words get tricky because it's actually a, a, a very true reality that the presence of God is in the midst of his people. A lot of the times you see the, the, the temple mentioned in the New Testament. That's what it's talking about. Christ refers to his own physical body in the temple. This, this temple will be torn down and I'll rebuild it in three days. He was in the presence of his people. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 refers to our own individual bodies as temples of the Holy Spirit. God is in us as individuals, and in our bodies we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. But most often, most often by far, when the temple is discussed in the New Testament, it's referring to the worship, or when the temple and temple worship are discussed in the New Testament, it's equated with the church. It's God's people, corporately gathered in individual communities, and around the world. That is the temple of God. And over and over again, it's in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 2, and, um, and especially in Hebrews 12 and 13. Both chapters of Hebrews 12 and 13 kind of weave these ideas together that God is in the midst of his people, and his people are the temple. They are the place where his presence dwells in the world. The metaphor is a little bit different in each of these passages, but in general, they all point to the same thing. God is working to build up the community of believers to be the place where he lives in the world. The church is how God has chosen to change you through his word and through the spirit, and the church is how God has chosen to change the world, to build it up and to bring his kingdom in the midst of it. And I, I would encourage you, we, we don't have time this morning, but I would encourage you to go back and read this week sometime if you get the chance um, in light of this, Hebrews 12 and 13, and then um, especially in First Peter 2, but there's also lots of other passages that, uh, that would work for that. So this is your heritage, church. The God of the universe is building stone upon stone this great and holy temple, the capital city of his vast and growing kingdom, the kingdom to which all other kingdoms are destined to succumb. And you people are the stones he is using to build it. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. But we, too, live in two realities at once, don't we? You're the temple of the living God, and you are. But as soon as you walk out those doors, you'll remember that you're also a 21st century American. And the McHales are 21st century Egyptians. But the, the point is, we have a very physical reality with which we have to deal, that we have to live in. And we have to figure out how this works out. You know, you unlock your phones. You read the news, as soon as you pull up the news, you'll see article after article after article of very powerful people who oppose God and the work of God in the world, and the work of the people of God in the world. In addition to that, as, as soon as you go into your normal, everyday, weekly lives, you're gonna face opposition that's financial, and you're gonna face problems that, have to, that are social, You're going to face peer pressure and financial pressure. You'll face all sorts of anxieties and temptations in your families and in your school and in your work. In all of life, there's all of these real gritty things that just keep bombarding us over and over and over again. And it's exhausting. So how do these two things mesh? The reality that we are the temple of the living God. We are the stones that are being built into that glorious temple. And the reality that... God is opposed by these dinky little potentates out there and by these elements of our lives that we don't have any control over. Well, God's message to us in the book of Haggai is very clear. There's a phrase that's repeated twice in there. There's actually several phrases that are repeated twice, and hopefully I'll get a chance to uh, to go through a few of them. But there's one phrase in particular and I want to draw your attention to. It says this, God says twice, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Think about the decisions that you make. Think about which reality is driving those decisions. Think about the fruits of your decisions. Think about the results that they have led to. Consider your ways. Consider how you use your money. Is your money as the end of Matthew calls us to do, is it being used to make disciples, or is it just making interest? Consider your words. Is your, are your words in your family, especially when nobody else is looking, are your words with your wife or your children or your husband, are they building up the body of Christ? Are they building up that temple? Or are they being used to manipulate people for your own emotional ends and needs? Consider your ways. And when you consider them, consider them in light of the heavenly reality first. One day, all of this opposition to God and his people and the work of his people will go away. It's going to end. It doesn't matter what what tack on biblical eschatology you take, the end is always the same. God wins, and all of this opposition just goes away. It's no more. And so what matters then is the decisions that you've made and the ways that you've gone that have enhanced the kingdom of God and that have sought the kingdom of God. Now, this does not mean that you can't enjoy the good things that God's given you. Again, there's nothing in here that says not to have fun, not to enjoy nice houses, not to enjoy the beach, not to enjoy vacation. There's nothing about that in there. And I would be, in fact, there's... um, there's actually commands to enjoy things. There's, this is not a, a passage that would make us kill joys or anything like that. It's a passage that teaches us to prioritize. To prioritize the work of God in the world and to prioritize His church. So consider your ways and what guides your decisions. And this is especially true if you've not yet trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've not yet placed your trust in Him. Consider what What's driving your decisions? Consider what's driving your life, because you can put all sorts of things into that void that Christ uh, of of not having Christ there, but none of them work. And so consider and turn to Christ. The second thing that it leaves us, and um, yeah, you, you got my cue without me even saying it. You went ahead and switched slides. Thanks. That was my mistake. But yes, we are on this slide now. Point three. Um, the second thing to consider is to, I'm going to hurry up here, but is to be strong. That command is given in Haggai chapter two, verse four. We didn't read this earlier, but I'll read it now. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. That be strong is kind of an odd command, right? It's kind of an odd application. So if you're weak, then how do you be strong? I I can't make myself be strong. Why would you tell a weak person to be strong? Why would you tell a strong person to be strong? They're already strong. So why, why the command to be strong? And I think what that's getting at is is, is more stay the course. Don't let your hands get slack in what God has called you to do. And this is especially true for my generation, right? For the Gen Xers and for the Millennials. Um, we have this... Uh, stop smirking, Austin, I see that. Austin has, and I have an ongoing debate as to what generation I'm actually in. I'm actually between Gen X and, and Millennial, by the way. But either, either generation, it doesn't matter. We have this idea that... Um, that we can punch buttons and see things happen, right? So you punch a certain set of buttons on your phone or on your computer, and hey, someone delivers pizza to you. That's great. You punch another set of buttons, and, and look, I've, I've connected with new people, and I have a new friend group online. You punch another set of buttons, and whoa, I just made some money. That's fantastic. We have this idea that punching buttons is what makes things happen, and more and more as this, as these generations progress, it's getting harder and harder to stay the course on things. It's getting harder and harder to maintain strong hands in the work that God has called us to do. We have heard a lot of people say, you know, I've, I've tried to do that. I've tried to do that good thing. I've tried to do that thing that I know God wants me to do, and it just didn't work out. It just didn't work. Um, well, Maybe you're facing adversity in that thing. Maybe God has led you through a long, hard path in order to do the work that he's called you to do. And maybe you should push on through. Maybe you should keep on going. Maybe that's what God's called you to do. So be strong. Be strong in not giving up. Turn to the God who is building his church and look to him for strength look to Christ. Then um, the third thing up there, separate from the unholy, and that's in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, 16, and 1 Peter two 11. Um, We're not going to spend a whole lot of time there. You don't need to turn there. Um, you can turn there separately, but almost every time the temple is brought up in the New Testament, the idea of holiness is also brought up, the idea of personal purity in our own lives. And the reason is kind of obvious, you know, the, the people of God in the ancient Near East or in the ancient world knew that they could not just approach God without being pure. They knew that if there was something that was coming to, between them and God, if there was some kind of dirtiness or some kind of um, anything like that that would show disrespect, they knew that that would not work out well and that they couldn't come before God before that uh, had been dealt with. And a lot of the New Testament passages that, that we, we haven't gone into um, point to that, to purify yourself, to, grow, to go to Christ, to be made pure, so that you can be built up as the house of God. And that's especially true in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 6, and it says to separate yourself from the world. It doesn't mean to separate yourself, or it says to separate yourself, go, to go out from among them, but literally that's separating yourself from their sin. Walk away from that. Turn away from that. That hinders the building up of the church. It hinders the building up of the temple of God in the world. And it hinders um, the, the movement of God's presence here. And those passages are all about that. And then one final thing. Work in the house of the Lord. There's, uh, there's one thing that's very, very consistent about all the times... That the temple is mentioned, or that that the temple is is present, all the stories about the temple—they all have one thing in common, and that's the temple is the place where sacrifices were made. Where sacrifices were made. It's the place where God met with His people. It's the place where God purified them from His sin, from their sins, by His sacrifice. And uh, Hebrews thirteen—I wish we could go there—is all about Christ's, the sprinkling of Christ's blood, speaking a better word than all other. Um, means of purifying yourself. But within that is the idea that the people came to the temple bringing sacrifice with them. And if you'll turn over to Hebrews 13, I'm going to read that. It's kind of a last thing. Have gone ahead and marked this out in my Bible, but there we go. Hebrews thirteen, and if uh, we'll we'll read verses fifteen and sixteen. So Hebrews twelve and thirteen is all about how is, it's all about this heavenly reality. It's all about the presence of God with His people, and the festivals, and in the sacrifice, and in the in the worship there. And then it, it says this. In uh, in chapter 13, verse 15 of Hebrews, through him then let us continuously offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. As the temple we're called on to, as the temple of God, we are called on. To bring sacrifices to God. And this kind of lists out general categories of what those sacrifices look like. And you have ample opportunity to do that. In this church, right here, every Sunday morning, there's sacrifices of praise that are given up to God. The fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. And there there are opportunities for good deeds everywhere. And it just it's very simple. It just says do good. And the, the you know, we kind of shy away from things like that every now and then because it feels like works righteousness a little bit, but, you know, the point here is really quite simple. Do good things. Just do it. And, and share with, um, share what you have. Now, a lot of uh, Hebrews 13, or earlier on in Hebrews 13, it talks about hospitality. It talks about that in the context of hospitality, of showing love and hospitality to strangers. And this is something that I personally struggle with. This is why this was convicting to me. I'm not a very hospitable person. I'm kind of a loner sometimes and an introvert or whatever. So it's it's something that God is working on me on. But very often, you know, we have we have the the haven of rest guys who are participating in that program come in and they have new people rotate in to participate in that program I don't know, weekly? But very, very often, there's strangers that are constantly coming in. And sharing with them is the sacrifice that God would have us do. The opportunity is there. Being hospitable to them, inviting them in, is the sacrifice that God would have us give. And also, there are visitors that come through those doors. Some of you here this morning listen to me, maybe visitors, but being hospitable and drawing people to Christ is the sacrifice that he requires, that he longs for, and the work that he would have us do. The bottom line, though, is this. There is a reality that must captivate our minds and shape our actions in the world. Christ has set apart for himself a people. He is with his people to empower us, to show his glory to the world, and to point the world to him as his temple, the place where he dwells. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for being here with us. I thank you that you've not forsaken us, that you've not just thrown us into the deep end and told us to swim, but Lord, you're here and you've been holding us up this entire time. Lord, I pray that you would give us a power and a zeal to go forth and to do the work that you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.